So it's on page 1,161. So page 1,161, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though through God we're making his as though as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And let me, let me pray for us as we come to look at those words. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, the Bible tells us you are a speaking God. And we have your words in the Bible. Please help us as we come to listen to it now to remember it's not, it is not us coming with our great thinking, working out what you say, but it's the other way around that you speaking to us with your powerful and gracious words are able to inform our thinking, change the way we think, and help us to grow in the right way. Please would you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Steve, as Steve mentioned, we've been doing this little series thinking about some foundations for our church family life together. We've thought about belonging and community and maturity growing, and today we're thinking about mission. 
speaking to other people about Jesus particularly, uh, evangelism. And I, I was thinking, I don't know, bucket lists. I don't know if you've got a bucket list. Seem to be the kind of rage at the moment. People thinking stuff they want to do. And I was wondering, I was thinking what I'd like to put in my bucket list. And I was thinking, I wouldn't mind, you ever thought about just being nudged gently by a dolphin? Um, don't know if that's on your, your bucket list. They've got kind of pointy noses, haven't they? And I was wondering, I wonder what it would be like to be in the water and just sort of nudged, nudged gently by a dolphin's nose. What would that feel like? You thought that? Or is it, maybe that's just me? A bit weird. Part of the reason I was thinking about it was I heard a story of a man called Robert Howes a few years back. He's a New Zealand lifeguard. He was out swimming with his daughter, Nikki. She was 15 years old. And another couple of young women who were training to be lifeguards. They're 100 meters out from the shore. And what I imagine was warm water in New Zealand. Um, I'm from Scotland, like Ian. He used to wear woolly woolly swimming trunks in Scotland because it was so cold. Um, Try and keep a bit warmer. But I imagine he was in uh, the warm water with these three young women, 100 meters out, and a pod of dolphins came and swam around them. It just sounds delightful, doesn't it? Um, A really life-enhancing experience to be swimming with dolphins just in their natural element. Maybe that would be in your, your bucket list. Actually, for Robert House, he said it began to get a bit annoying. Some people just... Nothing pleases them, uh, does it? Because the dolphins just kept nudging them, kept nudging them back towards the shore. And they were trying to swim out the other way just to keep enjoying the swimming pesky dolphins. And then it happened. As the dolphins were swimming around them, there was a gap in them for a moment. And through the gap, Robert Howe saw a three-meter-long great white shark that had been cruising, trying to get in at them. And when the dolphins had seen the shark, they had encircled the swimmers and kind of uh, flapping around them to try and keep the shark away and were nudging, nudging the swimmers, trying to get them to go back to the shore. Suddenly his perspective was changed. This wasn't just some kind of life-enhancing experience. Isn't it delightful to be with the dolphins? This was a rescue mission, wasn't it? They were part of a rescue mission. And those nudges in a particular direction, turns out they weren't just annoying distractions in an otherwise enjoyable situation. No, they were just about the most important thing happening in the water that day. And the reason I say that just as we begin to think about this, what we're doing this morning, is because when we think about church, our church life together, we could think of it in many ways as a life-enhancing experience. Lots of things happen in our church life that we find really enjoyable. Uh, the sense of community, and that's good. Activities for, for children and young people that are good. The encouragement of good moral values. Maybe you think that's a good thing. You want to be around that. Or the experience of changed living. Again, a good thing. However, if we end up thinking, if we end up thinking that's all that's going on, that it's just, it's just an experience for the present, we'd be in danger of missing the big thing of what God's doing for and through the church. Here's our little church building. It's a funny little building, isn't it? Someone was saying to me, oh, funny design that, isn't it? Not like a proper church building, but it's there. It's a funny little church building with a nice front on it. And you think, what, what we're about? Well, here we are as a church family, and we're part of a rescue mission. 
not just concerned with this life, but with all eternity. And with that, there's going to be a few nudges that come, which will be a bit annoying if you don't have the right perspective on it. Because that's the way it is with rescue missions, isn't it? Your immediate comfort is never the most important thing. That's the case with rescue missions. Your immediate comfort is not the most important thing. And when it comes to being rescued, you're not the one in charge, by definition. Someone else is. I mean, that's verse 9 in the reading Sov had for us, wasn't it? Do you see what Paul says there? So we make it our goal to please him. Someone else is in charge. Paul's talking about the way he and we should think about Jesus. And then he carries on like this in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And a statement like that, it, it kind of goes against the grain for the way many of us think these days. We're used to having our voices heard. Used to having our opinions and our complaints taken seriously and acted upon. I mean, here in Cambridge, you're successful people. You know how to get things done. We can be quick at firing off an email when there's something we're not happy about. So it's good to remember, isn't it? As you read these words, for all the ways that we can make our voices heard, there will come a day for you and me, even as Christians, where our talking will stop and someone else's voice will speak with authority and he will pass judgment on how you and I have lived. Everything will be out in the open. And for the Christian, yes, we've been rescued marvelously, graciously, totally, completely. We've been rescued. But how we've lived will be examined in terms of, did it please Jesus? Is that the way we lived? So it's worth thinking, isn't it? It's worth thinking, what does it mean? What will it mean for us as a church family to live in that kind of way. And the nudge we're given here is that we are to be wholeheartedly committed to his rescue mission. That's verse 11. See what he says? Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And don't get confused um, with the the word fear there. It's not so much, it's not so much running away in fright. Like my dad, my dad wasn't perfect, but he was a good dad. He was a really good dad. And being good, one of the things my dad would not tolerate was me being cheeky to my mum. If he heard me speaking to her in a way he thought was disrespectful, I wouldn't stop being his son. Couldn't stop being his son. But I'd find myself on the wrong side of his pleasure. There'd be a raised eyebrow, a warning look, and if needed, a stern correction. You don't talk to your mum like that. Now, he was clear about those kind of things. On the other side, treating my mum well, saying thank you, offering to help, that would bring a different reaction from him because he loved my mum. He was always conscious of how anyone was speaking to her, even the children in his own family. And there's something of that here. I think what Paul's saying is, look, since we know what this Jesus is like, you Corinthians, who he's writing to, you know what he's like. 
Since we know what this Jesus is like, that he's a rescuing savior, that it brings him pleasure. It brings him pleasure when people are brought in who come to know God again, are saved. When it brings him pleasure, we're careful to make sure we don't put ourselves on the wrong side of his pleasure. When you think about it the other way, as a church family, it is possible for us to live in such a way that we bring Jesus pleasure. Little you and me. Here we are in Cambridge. Our church family, in the big scheme of things, in the universal scheme of things, we're a speck on a tiny planet in the vast expanse of the universe that God has made. And this says there is a way that we can live that can bring divine pleasure. And Paul says one of the ways we do that is when we try to persuade others. Now, I know some of you who will be here this morning, you probably wouldn't say you're in the place where you'd yet call yourself Christians. You've begun to think those things through. You've been coming along, and that's great. It's a good thing to do. Keep doing that. And I imagine even if you've, you've not thought about it consciously before, it won't really be a surprise to be told that Christians want to tell others about Jesus. You get that. It's probably part of the reason you've come along, because somebody's spoken to you, invited you along. I suppose the only thing that might be new as you read these words, is understanding how deeply embedded it is. Because talking to others about Jesus, it's not something extra the church does if it wants. It's something the church understands comes from the very heart of God. So serious. It's even mentioned with reference to God's judgment seat. So one of the things at the end of time, he's thinking about, we're thinking about, So for us as a church, if we're to be involved in in telling others about Jesus, how are we to do it? I think there's things that we learn from what Paul says here. Here's the first thing. Look, Jesus, Jesus commands that we share the gospel with integrity. It's probably worth knowing that part of the reason Paul's writing this part of the letters is in part to defend himself. Some in Corinth were talking against him, saying things like, He's not very impressive spiritually. He doesn't share dramatic kind of spiritual experiences. He's a bit ordinary. He doesn't even speak in the most dramatic of ways. That's, that's kind of, I think, what's behind verse 13, where Paul says, look, if we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. I think, it's a, it's a funny bit just to translate that, but I think part of the contrast he's painting is, look, dramatic spiritual talking versus being self-controlled. And I think he's saying, look, dramatic spiritual experiences, they might happen, but I'll keep that for me and God. When I'm talking to you and others, I'm not showing off about some experience of God. I want to talk in a self-controlled way. Back in verse 11, he said this, look, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Paul's saying, look, I stand before God, He knows what I'm really like. I can't hide anything from him. And I hope you can see I try and do the same thing with you and with others. I'm not trying to show off. I'm not pretending to be someone I'm not. I'm not trying to hype up any crazy experience to try and get you all worked up about it. I'm not trying to trick anyone. All I want to do is in a self-controlled, honest, and open way try to persuade you that the message about Jesus really is the answer to life's 
biggest questions. When a young man speaks to a young woman and she says, are you a Christian? In an honest and straightforward way. These things are important. I want to talk about them. The way you talk with each other. Just open and honest. That's what we're to do as a church. You don't need to be fancy and flashy, just honest and open about Jesus. Chatting with another mum at the school gates. Beginning to say how, how trusting God has really helped you. Talking to a colleague and the question of suffering comes up and you start to say, look, you found the Bible says Jesus gives answers to those questions. You've been finding them really helpful thinking about that. Nothing flashy, just open and honest. Beginning to talk, see where it goes. Paul says he he persuades people. He tries to persuade people. You sometimes hear that word of persuasion. Some people would think, especially if you're on the more cynical end, persuasion is just a code word for manipulation. And I guess it could be. But it's not really what Paul means. You think about this, don't you? Persuasion means, if I'm to persuade you, and I really mean that, it means that I have taken you seriously as a thinking person. If I'm to persuade you, it means I've got to really take you seriously as a thinking person, that you'll be able to hear and understand an argument and make some kind of reasonable response. And if I'm to be persuasive, I will need to work hard at explaining things in a way you can understand them. That's what persuasion's doing. It's taking other people seriously. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, described Christian persuasion this way. He said, try to show Christian faith is worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature. And then show it is attractive because it promises true good. That's what we're doing. Wanting to persuade people. This message about Jesus it really does make sense of life. And it is good news for life. And Jesus commands us to do that openly and honestly with integrity. Now here's the second thing. Jesus changes how we think about everyone. I find people quite interesting. I like finding out about them, asking questions. You might think that's nosy. I like to think of it as just being curious. Maybe it's a bit nosy, but I like finding out about all sorts of people. And I remember things about them. Uh, our new ministry trainees, you met them just a little while ago. There they are. They're a fine-looking bunch, aren't they? Uh, I've started working with them the past few weeks, and I've been getting to know them. Here's some of the things I've found out. One of them tells terrible jokes. I mean, really terrible jokes. Bad jokes. Bad, bad jokes. One of them doesn't like ABBA music. Hates it. Doesn't like ABBA music. One of them's got dodgy calf muscles. Strange thing to find out, but I found that out. I found it quite interesting. One of them is super competent with computers. One of them has what's verging on her own private stationary collection. I've never seen so many highlighters, post-it notes, things like that. They'll share them, but they're their stuff. All sorts of things you can find out about people. It's interesting. And as you get to know people, you, you begin to think of them in certain kinds of ways. It, it can be fun, isn't it, finding out about people, but there can be a dark side as we do that. Do you find this? Those of you, those of you sitting here just now who are massive ABBA fans, you're already thinking, who doesn't like ABBA? <laughs> who is it? Which one? You've been trying to work it out. Who doesn't like ABBA? Uh, and why would we even appoint someone like that? How do you get to be a ministry trainee at Christchurch if you don't like ABBA? But I'm not going to land them in it. That wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be a fair thing to do, would it, to land 
just so you're clear, I have not told you anything about who doesn't like Abba. Let's move on from that slide. We start to make little judgment calls about people about all sorts of things, don't we? As we look at them, we find out about them. But then we remember what Paul says. We are not the ones sitting in the judgment seat. Someone else is. So the way we think about people has got to change. We've got to start thinking the way he thinks. That's verse 16. So from now on, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And the way we're to think, if you want a little summary for that, we'll just look back at verse 14. Here's how we're to think about people. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What's Paul mean? I think it's something like this. If what the Bible says about Jesus Christ is true, that he is God's son and that he has come on a rescue mission and at the heart of that rescue mission was that he had to die for everyone, not just some, everyone, That's what it required. That means everyone must have a death sentence hanging over them in this life and the life to come. If it required the Son of God dying for them, then everyone must have that sentence hanging over them. But he died for them so that those who trust him could be brought to new life. That's what Paul says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone... If anyone is in Christ, if anyone's trusting him, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Think about people this way. My friend Reese told me about his mum and dad once had invited uh, another couple from their church uh, round for dinner one evening. Reese was there and they were, they were chatting about a young man who'd been in the youth group and he'd gone off to university, he'd done really well in his degree. And he'd landed a job in the city down in London. His career was flourishing. He was earning lots of money. And they were all saying about how well he was doing. And Reese told me, he said to his parents and their friends, what are you talking about? You know he stopped going to church. You know he stopped following Jesus. Why are you not concerned about that? In the end, what will it matter if he has a big job in the city. We're always tempted, aren't we, to make fundamental judgment calls on people in those kinds of ways, to put ourselves in the judgment seat of how we assess someone. As a church family, as we meet people, we want to be interested in them, super interested. It's going to be curious, verging on nosy finding out if they fly planes or build robots or study ancient languages. But as a church family, there's something else we must have regard for. Robert Howes off the coast of New Zealand with a shark. Can you imagine if you got in the water in a cage so you were safe? Can you imagine asking him, what's the most important thing you think about your daughter right now? I'm pretty sure his answer would be, whether she's in or out of the water. As a church family, are we beginning to think that way? Are you praying that way when you come to prayer 150? 
praying for people, for what we're doing as a church here. Dads, when you're praying for your family, I know some of you will be deeply concerned for friends and family members who don't seem to know Christ. So verse 14 is encouraging for us, isn't it? For Christ's love compels us. He doesn't love them any less than you do. But Jesus changes how we think about everyone. And look, here's the last thing. The gospel of Jesus is a message we must proclaim. You you look at verse 20, and it's pretty clear Paul thinks of himself as a messenger. That's the job he's got to do. He's a messenger. Therefore, we, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. The, the message is there at the end of verse 21. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the swap that's taking place. Now, perfect for guilty. Jesus for you and for me. In a couple of lines, Paul lets us know our big problem, why Jesus is such good news. Every one of us has lived as God's enemy. We've lived in his world, taken his gifts, and done what we want, and done things even we know at times morally were wrong. We deserve his judgment and to be lost to life forever, and that's what awaits us. But God in Jesus has come and lived a sinless, sinless life, yet on the cross has taken the penalty for our sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could be, how does Paul put it? Be reconciled to God. People sometimes ask, don't they, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? They kind of say to you, well, it's all kind of the same. And if you say, no, it's not quite the same, well, what's the difference? I think one helpful answer can be this. You might have heard it before. That the difference is like this. It's the difference between do and done. Religion says often do. Here's all the things you've got to do in order to be right with God. Well, the gospel says, here's what God has done in order to make you right with himself through Jesus. And that's why the gospel is a message we proclaim. It's the announcement of good news. We're to tell people what God has done done for them, not what they're to do in the first place, but what God has done for them through the person of Jesus and call them to come and receive it. It's a gracious and free gift. And what does that mean for us as a church family? Well, here's a couple of things to think about. Here's one thing. We need to question our comfort. We need to be wary of building a Christian life, or growing a church family that is just a wonderful life-enhancing experience and has forgotten its call to be involved in discomfort. The bumps and nudges of a rescue mission. Do you know what my favorite kind of thing to do is on Saturdays, if I can, is to have a nice coffee, to have a bagel or something like that. Time with the family, reading the paper. Be, I can't remember the last time I read the paper. I said to Julia, it's my birthday uh, in a couple of weeks. I said to Julia, hey, do you know what I'd like for my birthday? I'd like it if I could go on a Saturday to a coffee shop somewhere just by myself, have a coffee, and read a paper once a month for a year. And then she, she's less keen on that. But they're, they're the things I like doing. It'd be a great Saturday. 
And next Saturday, we're here, Steve mentioned, for the word one-to-one. Thinking as a church family how we can share the gospel with people who don't know it. I find that battle. Isn't it frightening? Because inside I'm thinking, but that means missing a coffee in the morning and a bagel. And I weigh up my own comfort versus where men and women, boys and girls, would spend eternity. I've got to battle the desire for my own comfort. But not everyone will be free next week, but if you are, come and help me with that battle as we think about our mission together. And here's the second thing. We've really got to work hard at thinking about people properly. I want to just live a good life in front of my friends and neighbors. I want to do that. Just live a good life. Be kind and friendly to them. A lot of the time I don't want to talk about sin or a savior who has to be nailed to a cross for them because I'm afraid they'll think I'm a bit mad and they won't like it and they won't like me. But Jesus loves them and he says they need to hear. So if we love them, we need to, as a church family, make time for that. When your neighbors ask you what you were doing this weekend and all the things you could say, How about saying, I've been to church. If you've never said that before, I I go every week. See where it goes. It's going to be Christmas before long. Only 93 days left. Are you ready? Are you ready for Christmas yet? What are you going to do in those 93 days? You could say hello to your postman, couldn't you? Do you know your postman? Do you know his name or her name? You, You could say hello to your postman because he's not just your postman is he? We don't think about people that way anymore. That's not just what he is or she is. There's someone for whom Jesus Christ has died. Someone for whom Jesus Christ says he loves them. Someone who needs to hear about him. 93 days to go. You can start saying hello so that when Christmas comes, you can invite them along to something here. Let's pray. I'm going to stop there. I want to have a moment of quiet. The music group are going to come back up. We're going to sing a couple of songs to finish about the gospel. But why not take a moment and just whatever thoughts are in your head, maybe there's someone particular on your mind you want to pray for. Why not do that now? And then I'll pray for us. And then when the music begins, we'll stand and sing together. So we make it our goal to please him. Lord Jesus, what a delight. What a delight to have a Savior and a God who is pleased to give himself for other people. What a delight to have a Savior who loves to rescue people and wants them to come in. What a delight to be able to live for a God and Savior like that. And forgive us when we're so slow to do it. Please help us to grow in this way as a church family. Amen.